There was a man who moved into a neighborhood recently, and when he got into the neighborhood, uh, one of the neighbors that he was going to now run into on a regular basis was a minister. And uh, so the minister wanted to make friends with him, and he went down and introduced himself and uh, just tried to befriend him a little bit. Well, the guy that moved in the neighborhood loved boxing, but he didn't know a whole lot about religion. So he took the minister to a boxing match with him, and uh, they were sitting there, and they were ready to watch this boxing match. And, and uh, as they introduced the two combatants in the middle of the ring, uh, the one turned around, walked away, and started taking off his robe, and he, and he kind of blessed himself, made the sign of the cross. Well, the neighbor asked the minister, he said, hey, uh, w what did he do? Why did he do that? What does that mean? And the minister thought for a second and said, well, uh, it doesn't mean anything if he don't know how to box. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, I, you know, I th and how many of us struggle, every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, struggle with the meaning of life? We struggle from time to time with, what, well, what does it really mean? What does that mean? What he just did, what does that mean? What is, that, what is he trying to say? What is it all about? And, uh, you know, just in the quiet moments when you're by yourself, you struggle with, hey, you know what, what is life all about? What, what's the meaning of life? What are we here for? What's the purpose? Why am I doing what I'm doing? We wrestle with all these things. Several years ago, a country western singer cut a hit record that was entitled Gentle on My Mind. And if you're familiar with the song, you know who I'm talking about. But in, the, in, the, in a song, a country western song, it was a ballad. And like any ballad, it would tell a story of something that was going on. And this man wanted to tell a story. And in this ballad, he told a story about a guy who wanted his life totally free and uncluttered with anything like lifelong commitments and anything that would hold him down and would chain him, it would chain him unnecessarily. He wanted freedom more than anything else. And he was satisfied to stop off every now and then. He was satisfied to stop maybe for a night or two. But more than that, you couldn't hold him down for any more than maybe a night or two. And as Glenn Campbell wrote these words, there were a lot of things that were in him um, that he kept saying over and over again. And one of them was, the door is always open and the path is free to walk. And woven through the lyrics is an expression I think most of us can remember, and, and that if you're familiar with the song, it goes, the back roads of my memory that keeps things blowing gentle on my mind. Over and over in this song, what he was trying to convey was the fact that, you know what, there was a restlessness in the soul of this cowboy, playboy cowboy, that wanted to keep him on the road. He'd stay for a couple of days, maybe at the most, but he wanted to keep on moving because in the back roads of his memory, there was something there, something that he was trying to find, something that was missing in his life. And so over and over again, he was on this search for pleasure, this path that he was taking. And as you listen to the song, you couldn't help but realize the futility of what he was looking for, and somehow you knew, as as the song concluded that he was never going to find what he was looking for. And uh, as we go through this, most of us, I think, have entertained the thoughts of pursuing a few of those back roads. Every now and then when the traffic gets a uh, little more than bearable and when you get tired of what's going on at your office and you get sick and tired of what's happening around your neighborhood, every one of us have explored the, the, uh, the thought of pursuing one of those back roads. And like a lot of us who have those back roads or those memories of our back roads of what we think life should really be like, a lot of it's like uh, the vacations that we look forward to in our memories or in our dreams are always a lot better off than what they actually turn out to be. They never quite measure up to what we think they're going to be. So as we go through this, I want to plant some thoughts here. And I want to just ask you a couple tough questions and we'll go from here. But that is, have you ever thought, have you ever thought about exploring some of those back roads? Have you thought about exploring the back roads, you know, that you've got some memories and you miss what it was like or you, it's always, you know, it's like they say, you can never go back to the old fishing hole. 
and you, you know what they're talking about because it's like when, when you experienced it and then you go back to it, you find out the old fishing hole is not what it used to be. It never is. But there's a memory there that keeps us wanting and longing to go back for something that we're missing. And the question that I have as we go through this, if you're having a tough time finding purpose and meaning in your life, you're probably at a point where you want to explore some of those back roads. Now, we've got a guest here from Oregon this morning, and we've got an interesting phenomenon that takes place in Southern California, and you've probably experienced it. Whenever we get sick and tired of what's going on down here and the rat race and all of the confusion that, that it holds and, you know, and everything that, that's happening, we think the best place to move is Oregon. Now, I understand that you people put a sign up there saying, you're not leaving California, resume normal behavior. Now, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but as you cross the state line, that's pretty much the way they think. Now, now seriously, how many, how many of you, be honest now, how many of you thought about moving to Oregon? Is this, would you, is this a scary thought? You look around here, some of these people could be your neighbors. So it's a good thing you came to check them out. But look at this. I mean, here's what, I don't know, 300 people in here, and almost every one of us want to move to Oregon. How many of you actually have ever lived in Oregon? Now, how many of you, oh, hold those hands up. Whoa, 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 I got another idea here. How many of you that have lived in Oregon and want to move back? Only one, only one, <laughs> only one out of 30. There's an interesting thought here that we're going to have to pursue somewhere along the line. But we all, it's like everybody in Southern California wants to move to Oregon. Why is that? See, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're just so disgusted with life and you're looking for meaning that you want to move to Oregon, but maybe your Oregon isn't necessarily the state of Oregon. Maybe your Oregon is, uh, you know what, you're, just, you're sick of your job and you're ready to find a new job. Just tired of it. You're tired of the rat race, you're tired of the hassles, you're tired of not being appreciated. So what you want to do is you're going to find a new job. See, that'll do it. Or what you want is that you want to buy a new car because you're just sick and tired of your car, you're sick and tired of the problems that it has, and you want a car. Now, maybe your organ's a car, maybe it's a job, maybe as we've gone through this marriage series, I mean, I've heard many uh, people think that their organ's going to be a new relationship. Tired of the old one? Ready for a new one. I'm ready for a new one. See, that's their organ. Maybe it's a friend of mine, every time he gets disgusted, he's going to go and have it set up a ranch in Montana. Now, I told, I told him you better be careful because I think Montana ultimately will become a penal institution and that we'll just send everybody in the, in, the, in the state that, well, I mean, think about it. It's a good idea. How many of you care about going to Montana? <laughs> Nobody, right? Well, okay, well, send them all to Montana. We'll put a big rope around the outside and just let them have at it. <laughs> just a thought. Or, or maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe you do want to move to Oregon. The point of all of this is, could you imagine just for a moment, and so what I've entitled this series is, could you imagine for a moment you're ready to move to Oregon? And because you know a friend that moved to Oregon to get away from all this, right? Oh man, it's great. Everything's wonderful. And just right when you get your bags all packed up and you're ready to go, you get a letter from Oregon. <laughs> it's a little off-centered, the letter, but... <laughs> It's still from Oregon nonetheless, and you'll find a good reason why it's off-centered, because when you move to Oregon for the wrong reasons, your life gets off-centered. So, anyway, you get a letter from Oregon. Okay, you're all packed up and ready to go. I said for the wrong reasons now. I have nothing against Oregon. I'll take it easy over there. Where's those two guards that were standing by the door a second ago? But um, the thing is, could you imagine just for a moment if the person who fled to Oregon would just be honest with you for one second? and would take the time to tell you what they discovered when they got there. All the reasons that they left. We've got friends that just moved somewhere up, up north and had a lot of good reasons, a lot of valid reasons why they did it. 
But I just wonder sometimes if the person that, that flees this situation and they're looking for the back roads of their memories, they're looking for that, that utopia that they're trying to find. And when they get to Oregon, if they just be honest with us for a moment and not play it up and make it sound like we're missing something, but just be, just be honest about what they found. See, this particular uh, study that we're going to go through is geared basically for people who are frustrated and they're ready to take a break. Ready to cash out, sell it all. After all, we can get a big bunch of money down here in Southern California for a house, and you can move somewhere else, and you can get debt free. And anybody that's a Christian, and you use that argument with them, they kind of go, oh, that sounds biblical to me. So, <laughs> I mean, that's it. Everybody that's moved away, they, that's been their line. I want to get debt free. Oh, that sounds biblical, and we can come up with a few verses, and we go, okay, great. Now the question that I struggle with is, okay, is that really the motive behind it? And what are they going to find when they get there? Because that's really the telltale evidence of what they were really looking for. See, so we're going to get a letter from Oregon, and if you don't like that, it doesn't seem scriptural enough, and uh, so we'll throw up, uh, oh, throw up something else. <laughs> so, and, and, well, gee whiz. But we're going to take a look at a journal or a diary of a desperate traveler, of a guy who went on the same type of trip that every one of us longed to go on, who explored it, that wanted us to see firsthand what it was really like. We're going to get a letter from Oregon that is open, that is honest, that is transparent, is going to tell us exactly what this guy found when he got there. And we need to hear a good dose of that because there's too many of us living our lives looking for something that's not there. And we're running in circles trying to find it. And God has the answer for it. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes, the first chapter. And we're going to go through a journal of a desperate traveler. As you're looking into this letter or this journal, what I want you to do for a moment is just pretend for a second that it was written specifically to you. When you get frustrated, when you're ready to make the break, when you're ready to chuck it all, bag it all, cash in, sell out, move away, when you're ready to do that and when you're thinking about it, I want you to think for a moment that this is written specifically for you. As the commercial says, this one's for you. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Take a look at the first paragraph of the letter. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and also of the later things which will occur, there will also be no remembrance of them. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I set my mind to seek and to explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and all is striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has observed the wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I realize that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Looks like he found what he was looking for in Oregon, doesn't it? We're going to go through, and I want to break this down so it makes some sense to you, because as you read this, you can miss a lot of what he's trying to tell us. Keep in mind that we're looking at uh, the problems. Number one, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the problems that lead to the journey. Have you ever stopped to wonder for a moment what leads a person to just bag it and move away? Just to just run from everything, whether it's changing jobs to jobs or relationship to relationship or homes to homes. What makes us get to the point where we just want to keep on moving? What, is the, what causes the restlessness? We're going to also take a look at the person that took this journey because it's imperative that we understand who it is that's writing this to us. What they've gone through, what their experiences were, so that they have some type of credibility when we come to the conclusion of why it was written. And that's going to be the third thing that we look at, and that's the purpose of the journal. The reason that it was written to us, what is to be accomplished by reading something like this? That's basically an overview of the outline that we're going to take a look at. And the first thing we're going to take uh, um, a look into is the problems that lead to the journey. What are some of the things that cause restlessness on the parts of people? Why do we want to bag it? Why do we want to go? What causes us not to be uh, satisfied necessarily where we're at or the frustrations that lead people on a desperate journey? And the first thing that comes to my mind as I go through this and look at what he has to say is that there's a loss of purpose. There is a loss of purpose. Look what he has to say in that first introduction for the letter that we're about to read. He says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? He's asking the question, and that is, hey, what is life all about? What's the purpose to it? If you're struggling with that, you know exactly what he's talking about. What is the purpose to this? What's the purpose? We get up every day, you know, you make your bed, you brush your teeth, you take a shower, you shave, you get dressed, you go to work, you do what you do, you come home, you eat, and it's, a, and it's an endless cycle. And it keeps going on and on and on, and you start to wrestle with, what is the purpose to all of this? See, that's what he said. What's the purpose? And you know what he said? Hey, you know what I found? I can't find a purpose. He said it's meaningless, is what he's saying. Vanity? Vanity? Man, it's utterly meaningless. Everything, if you just stop long enough to think about what you're doing, doesn't mean anything. Think about it. What do you think's important? Think it's important to go to work? You think it's important to make money? Do you think it's important to do this, do that, to move, to buy this house, to build that house, to do this? You know what he's saying? It doesn't mean anything. When you get right down to it, when all is said and done, it means absolutely nothing. That's what he's saying. So, so we wrestle with that and we begin to experience it. In fact, he says, what advantage does man have in, the, in, the work, in all his work, which he does under the sun? Verse 3, you know what he's saying is, what's the bottom line? It's an accountant's transaction that means after all expenses, after everything's said and done, what's the bottom line? What is the bottom line? Have you ever asked yourself that? What's the bottom line to what I'm doing? What is the bottom line? And as you get older, you look back in your life and say, hey, you know what? What have I accomplished? When it's all said and done, if I died today and they had to say something about me at my funeral, what are they going to say about me? What's the bottom line? What did I stand for? What does it mean? And I've lost purpose because I can't get a grasp of it. One man writes, futile days we can expect from time to time, some of what we plan will miscarry. Paths that look promising will peter out and force us to backtrack. 
pillars that we lean on will collapse and send our hopes tumbling down on us. When sickness strikes or financial reverses hit, futile days stretch into empty, empty weeks or months. There have been times when we've heaved huge sighs when we ripped December's page from the calendar and welcomed the new year that offered better days than the old. This futility is akin to irony because it is full of surprises. We find it where we least expect it. Values that we treasure prove false. Efforts that should succeed come to failure. Pleasures that should satisfy do nothing but increase our thirst. Ironic futility, futile irony, that is the color of life. And if you've seen that ad campaign that did it so well, same time, same place, same thing. And what's funny is they say, well, here's something new, something different. And pretty soon that new something different becomes same time, same place, same thing. You ever notice that? Oh, man, isn't it great? New fast food restaurant. Oh, totally different idea. Here we go. Now there's 62,000 of them on Tustin Avenue alone. Oh, something new. There's something different. Hey, you know what? He says it's futile. How many times have you asked that question? I'll give you some examples. You enter school, person enters school and they've got hopes that they're going to get an e education, they anticipate it, and it's going to equip you to head on out into the real world. You're going to make an impact, you're going to make a change, only to find that every idea you come up with is shot down by jealous co-workers. But education is really the answer to all problems today in life, and people would have us believe that. The pursuit of education. This guy writes uh, about the mumbo-jumbo futility of education. He writes, the education is the great mumbo-jumbo and fraud of the ages. It purports to equip us to live and is prescribed as a universal remedy from everything from juvenile delinquency to premature senility. For the most part, it serves to enlarge stupidity, inflate conceit, enhance credulity, and put those subjected to it at the mercy of brainwashers with printing presses, radio, and television at their disposal. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with education, but I'm just saying that if you're ready to, to bag it out. Because I didn't say that at all, actually. It's, um, this, this gentleman here wrote this. So. But the point is this, we've got people that are entering institutions of higher learning so that they can be equipped to go out and make a difference in the world only to find out that what they think they're going to be able to do, they haven't been able to do. So they lose purpose, they lose vision, they think, hey, what's the sense, what's the use of all of this? And they get disheartened and discouraged by it. Or you look forward to that new job where you can make a difference. You can make a contribution. They're going to appreciate what you have to offer. And they do for a little while until the honeymoon's over and until you begin to challenge some of the thinking and some of the habits of the, quote, in-group. And then you find out you're not making any difference at all. So what happens? You lose purpose. You lose vision. You may jump from two to three or four jobs and say, hey, you know what? Well, it's just the wrong place, wrong place. You keep looking for that place where you're going to make a difference. And after two or three of these type of moves, you kind of go, well, I guess that's not where the answer is. So you lose purpose, you lose vision, you get frustrated with all of it. I deal with professional athletes who are going to be all pro, all star, all world, all universe, all everything. And the first thing you know is they, they make a, a wrong cut in the turf and the, and the ground slides out, slides out from underneath them and a knee blows and everything that they dreamed of and every vision and purpose is gone just in a moment, just on a cut of a dime. But see, that was what their purpose was. That's what their vision was. And now they've lost that and they've lost hope. <laughs> And so you go through it, or maybe your company was bought out by a large conglomerate. They have the working capital that you now need. It's going to be wonderful. The benefits are better. The wages are going to be better. The bonus program is going to be better. Everything is going to be better for you until you hear those two words, those two sentences that all uh, acquisitions have that follow it that are a big lie. And the first one is this. It says, don't worry, nothing's going to change. <laughs> the first lie of any acquisition. Lie number two is we're from corporate and we're here to help you. 
Okay, those are the two. And all of a sudden, your dreams that you had are just, they vanish in a second of time. Guess what? How many, there's people right now, your dreams, you, you've seen them slip away. And the older you get, the louder the clock ticks as far as whether you're going to accomplish those dreams that are going to bring purpose and meaning to your life. And you can hear it clicking louder and louder in the background. And your dreams and your hopes and your purpose are slowly dwindling away. And you get into the point where you say, you know what? Nothing means anything. Nothing means anything anymore. In fact, uh, there was a teacher who was teaching a high school class who was so frustrated by the, the lack of response on the part of his students that he got up to the chalkboard and he wrote out, he wrote out, a, P, A, T, H, Y, put an exclamation point, slammed the chalk down, it broke. And uh, one of the students was looking at her going, A, P, A, apathy, apathy, apathy. And he looked at a fellow student and he said, what's apathy? And the guy said, I don't know, who cares? <laughs> who cares? You find that in your life? Who cares? We live in an age of indifference. No one cares. And we hear complaints all the time. Even in church, people don't care. No one cares. No one knows what I'm going through. No one cares. And that vision and the purpose starts to slowly uh, erode away. In Nehemiah chapter 4, when they're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, if you want to read it sometime, you can look at it. And in the middle of their process, they got the wall half built. It was half complete, and the Bible says the reason that they did it was because the people had a mind to work. But you know what happened? They got discouraged. They said, there's much rubbish, we cannot rebuild it. And they took their eyes off of what was already done. They took their eyes off of the purpose and the vision that they had in doing it, and they began to look at the work that was still left to be done. Half-finished projects dominate our lives. And if you've got a list that's half complete, I don't care if it's your business or home or wherever, you've got a list of half things that are done. After a while, you start to look at that list and go, what does it mean anyway? You lose a vision. You lose a purpose to it. And the problem is that as a result, it's going to lead you. You're ready to pack and you're ready to take one of these trips. The second cause of, of, uh, common cause of problems like that is the longing of pleasure. The longing for pleasure you know what it is? It's like we get desperate for a purpose, and since there's none that we can find and, and there's none forthcoming, we develop a kind of a what-the-heck attitude. You know what? Everything I was doing, all the changes I tried to make on my job, all the things that I thought I was going to improve by getting an education, uh, all the effort that I put into my marriage, uh, I don't see anything coming of it. I don't see any fruit of it. So you know what? What the heck? I think I'm just going to go have some fun. I'm going to go have some fun. Look at Luke for a moment, chapter 15. I want to show you an example. I'm going to show you who really discovered Oregon. It's a little known historical fact. One that has and will have less credibility when you leave here with this knowledge, but here is who discovered Oregon. Look at Luke 15. Look at verse 11. Now Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country. And well, I know where that is. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the, in the country, in that country, and he began to be in need. You notice that? The longing for pleasure. Can't find any purpose, so I might as well have a good time. What do you think? 
Hey, and he went off and he took it and he went to a distant country to squander it. And you know what I'm finding that's interesting to me is that when we look for answers and we're searching and we use all the biblical reasons you can come up with, but God cuts right through because he knows the heart. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. I've heard more people use all the greatest wisdom in the world when it comes to making a decision to bag it, to cash out and to move away. But you know what's amazing thing to me is that their lifestyle doesn't change. They carry it with them from relationship to relationship, from business to business, from uh, uh, home to home, from state to state. You see what happened here? This guy went away to a distant country. Why? Because he didn't want to be held accountable by the people who were around him that would keep him on the straight and narrow. There's a way that seems right to man, but it didn't send its way as destruction. Every one of us, if we're left without accountability, are going to go in a direction that's going to be pleasing to ourselves because we don't want to have to answer to God. We don't want to do things God's way. So it's amazing to me how often it is when we want to do our own thing that we've got to escape to a distant country. We're going to move away where no one knows us. We're going to go somewhere else so that uh, the baggage that we carry with you, no one has to know about. See, there's the accountability. We don't want that accountability. We want to just be able to go away and squander, and that's exactly what he did. He spent everything. He wanted to have a good time. He wanted to have fun. He could have had all the greatest reasons in the world, but the bottom line is that what he did after he left really determined why he went there. The third thing and uh, that'll keep you longing for one of those trips is the lack of contentment. The lack of contentment we saw as we were going through our marriage series in Proverbs 7, 10 through 12, it says, A woman dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. One of the biggest problems that we have and an issue that we have to face is that many of us have a serious problem with our contentment level. We are not content with anything, so we continue to search and we're restless and we're looking for an answer somewhere in life. And we think we're going to find it somewhere under the sun. And Solomon, as he goes through it, says, hey man, you're not going to find it under the sun. It's not going to be there. What you're looking for, you're not going to find. And a lack of contentment is at the root of many a person who makes one of these desperate trips. They got restless feet. They don't know how to handle it. We see it. We saw it in our marriage series. From one relationship to another, there's not a contentment level there. And so as we go through this, those are the problems that lead to it. Now, it's important that we understand also the, some of the facts about the person that took the trip. See, because it's too easy to write off somebody like this. It's too easy when you get a letter from someone in Oregon and you look at the person that wrote it to you to say, well, what do they know? You know what I mean? What do they know? They have no credibility. They were dumb when they left, and they're still dumb in Oregon. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what, do you think crossing the border, all of a sudden you got some wisdom and insight? It doesn't happen. So we can, we can discount people like that because we don't really have to deal with it. But the problem that we have here, and it's critical in understanding the purpose of why we have this, is to realize who it was that wrote it. And the first thing that we see in, in the first chapter, going back to Ecclesiastes, is that we're told... For a moment, let's just pretend like we don't know who wrote this. Let's just look at the evidence that exists, and we're told who it is. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The Bible is very clear about who it is. The word preacher doesn't necessarily mean a pastor, but it means a public speaker. It had one who had the opportunity to speak to large groups of people to an assembly. Uh, the, the ecclesia was a gathering of people, and the speaker who addressed them, or the uh, house, uh, speaker of the house, so to speak, and uh, so when you look at that, you realize that a, a king, who he addresses himself as, he's the son of David, he's the king in Jerusalem. So what he's saying is that I had an opportunity as king to address large groups of people. 
to address the assembly. This is who I am. That's my title. And you can't miss it when you consider he's the son of David and he's the king in Jerusalem. It becomes very clear who it is that wrote it. But we also have other evidence. And, and the second thing that we see is his home. In chapter 5, we read, guard your steps in verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. So the second evidence that we have of who it is, is where he lived. And he's saying that he lived near the house of God, which is the temple, which means that he had to live at a time when the temple stood. Well, we know from history that the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, and that it was rebuilt at some point later in that. So we know whoever it was had to live at a time where the temple stood, and also, he lived in Jerusalem, which would be obviously near the temple. So we can identify the author by, first of all, his title. Second of all, where he lived. And third, if you want to take a look at it, we also see the evidence of the fact that he was an older man who's writing it at the time that he writes it. And as we go through this, I'd encourage you to read through this whole book, uh, all 12 chapters, and continue to read it over and over again as we go through this series so that it makes more sense to you. But the bottom line is that he was an older man who wrote it. The Jewish people held that the Jewish, early Jewish views state that Solomon wrote it, quote, in his old age, when weary of life, to expose the emptiness and vanity of all worldly pursuits and carnal gratifications, to show that happiness of man consists in fearing God, obeying his commands. The Jewish Mizra says that the Solomon wrote it on the evening of his days, the Song of Solomon in his youth, and Proverbs at middle age. And it makes a lot of sense when you realize that Solomon, as an older person, is writing to us to give us what he had experienced and said, look, you're going to go on the trip. Let me just tell you about it. I've been there. I know all about it. Would you just stop for a moment before you pack your bags and get in the car and you sell the house and do everything you want to do? Would you just stop and just listen to me? And so I'd encourage you to do the same thing. If you're frustrated with the meaning of life, before you do anything that you're going to live to regret, would you just stop for a moment to listen to, to what he has to say because it's, it's a matter of life and death for your future. We also see that it led to bondage. Now, I know that blesses a lot of the ladies that are here, but we can't help but uh, take a look at that for a second. His marital experiences led him to bondage. Look at uh, chapter 7 for a moment. And all the God's men said, Oh, amen. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. I'm just kidding. Amen. Well, he had too many anyway. Okay, well, there's a good point. Let's look at that for a second. Now, I guess the next question is, how many is too many, ladies and gentlemen? That's the one that we won't have to address. Well, I'm, I'm saying more than one. What do you say? Chapter 7, look at verse 26. He said, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. And it's interesting that he uses the, the, the phraseology there of a thousand, because Solomon, we know from 1 Kings, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. We'll talk about that next week. It's an interesting dilemma to run a household like that. But for a moment, can you imagine all of them with Nordstrom's charge cards? That's an absolutely scary thought. But it's one that we have to address. And what he's saying is, and we know from, from uh, the, the facts, is that guess what happened to Solomon? He married godless women. 
and he broke the commandment of God. And he did his own thing, and he tried to please himself. And you know what happened to him as a result of it? His wives led his heart from the Lord, led him astray, took him down the wrong path. And you know what he found? The path that he went down was bitter, man. It was nasty. There was nothing good about what he did. And so he shares that with us and said, look, man, let me just tell you something from my marital experience. You want to be disobedient to the Word of God? You want to do your own thing? You want to come up with your own source of pleasures? Let me just tell you something. You're going down a bitter road. You're going down a bitter road. It may seem right to you, but in its end is destruction. It's, it's bitter. It's nasty. And we see that from his marital experiences. And then also the last two things that we see going back to the first chapter is that Solomon had wisdom and wealth that was greater than anybody ever had in all of the world at that time. And the Bible says, and even after his time. Do you see that? It says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all were, who, were over Jerusalem before me. Later on, we read in the second chapter, look at verses 4 through 9. It says, Man, I possessed more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom stood also by me. And as we go through this, it becomes very obvious who the person was that wrote the letter, the book that we're now reading. And I, and I did this for a reason because I want you to understand you cannot discount who it is. You cannot say the man doesn't have credibility. You cannot say the man checked his brains out at the door. You can't say it was just some flaky friend of yours who were off doing their own thing because what this man has to say, this man experienced firsthand. He did it. He knows what he's talking about. And you can't write him off. Because I want to share something with you. There's nothing that you ever do or accomplish in life that will even come close to what this guy did. Nothing. And if that's true, what a, what a, a remarkable source of uh, credibility that he now has. Isn't that the truth? I mean, the guy has credibility. It's almost like the sports car comes to a screeching halt. The guy jumps out. He tears off the gold chains off of his neck. He buttons up his shirt. And he just says, look, before you're going to do what you're going to do, would you just stop and listen to me for just one minute? Because I'm going to share with you what I discovered on my trip to Oregon. I'm going to share with you what I discovered on the way there. And I'm going to share with you what I discovered when I got there. And I just want you to know us so that you understand ahead of time. Because if you take the same trip, you can never come back to me later and say, oh, I didn't know. See, isn't that the truth? That's why God does what he does. He says to you and I, hey, look, I'm going to tell you what the end is before that you go through the process so you can never stand before me someday and say, well, you never told me. You know, and that would be, I mean, you could just hear it now. And God said, hey, I told you. You didn't listen. Here it is. I'm telling you right now. So you're on a search. God's saying, hey, I want, I want you to understand something here. I want to give you three purposes why this was written, and we're going to go through it as, as the weeks go by and really get into each one of them. But the first purpose is it's to reveal the futility of all earthly pursuits. To reveal the futility of all earthly pursuits, there is nothing that you're going to accomplish that's going to bring meaning or purpose to your life. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. If you're an up-and-comer, if you're in the business world and you're out there and you're doing your thing and you think that somehow making more money in your job or, or inventing this or inventing that or coming up with a new idea and you think all of that's going to bring some purpose and meaning to your life, would you just listen to Solomon for a second because he owned more businesses, he had more side investments, he had more things going on, he, he went through more acquisitions and divestitures that you ever go through in your life. And this is his conclusion. Guess what I found? 
Hey, man, you know what? What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? <laughs> when it's all said and done, what do you really accomplish? I don't know what you think is going to do it. You say, but man, you, you don't know. You haven't been there. Hey, I don't have to be there. Solomon's been there. Where are you going to go that he hasn't been? He's been there. He's going to be able to tell you about everything you think is going to answer a problem in your life or give you some direction. And in fact, if you look at it, here's, here's his reasoning for it. You ready for this? The, the reasons that he said everything that you're going to pursue in life are futile. Number one, look at verse four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Hey, you know what? You're out on a search to accomplish something and you know what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to die. And then it's going to be, well, what was that worth? When you accomplished, what was it worth? And you know the irony of all of it, the futility of all of it, which he saw was, have you ever read these little local newspapers? You know, they don't separate the obituaries from the birth announcements. And I always thought that was kind of fascinating. It's like, oh, notice this, Joe checked out today. Joe was such an age, and Joe did this, and Joe lived here. Oh, and good news for you, though, Sally and John just had a baby today. And you look across the street, and there's a hospital over there. And the irony of a hospital and the futility of all of it is, on one floor, someone's dying. On another floor, someone's being born. And, the, and the, the, the greater irony to me, and this is just a little side comment I'm going to throw in here, is that on one floor we're trying to save the life of somebody who's dying of cancer, and on another floor we're killing babies. That's amazing to me, and if that's not futile, nothing is. But the point that he's making is, that don't you realize, hey, what do you think you're going to accomplish in life that's going to mean something because you're on your way out? Isn't that amazing? You have all these problems, all these things going on at the office. And then I got a phone call last week from, from a couple that you know, and uh, their 22-year-old son was killed in an auto accident. You know what? Bang! Just like that. It was like, hey, you know what? <laughs> all the problems that we had, all the things we were worrying about, all the stuff going on in business mean absolutely nothing at that moment in time. Nothing. That's what Solomon said. Hey, I came to that conclusion. I don't care what I accomplish, I'm going to die. And the irony of it all is, I'm going to die and then somebody else is going to be born. It just kind of keeps on going like that. It says, uh, also the sun rises, the sun sets, hastening to its place. It rises there again, blowing toward the south and turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along all the circular motions. And it's like he was watching Dr. George. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, is the most overrated conversation that we have in the world about the weather or what? How many of you have friends, family, live on the East Coast? Huh? What's the first question? How's the weather? Hey, like, it, like we can do something about it, right? It's like, you know, it's like I want to take credit for it. We got great weather, you know, I'm doing my best to make sure that it continues to be this way. What? I have no control over it. I can't do anything about it. What do you think? You can? That's an amazing thing. We spend so much time. I don't even know why we even give it any time in Southern California. What's the weather going to be? I tell my daughter the same thing every day. Dad, you hear the weather? Yeah, it's the same as yesterday. It's going to be the same tomorrow. Does it really matter? I mean, it's not like, hey, we're going to have a blizzard tomorrow. Put on your parka, okay? <laughs> Southern California, it's even better than anywhere else. It's so futile. It's like every day is the same. Oh, just another crummy day in paradise. You've seen that, you know? <laughs> You've seen that postcard, right? It's like, who cares? The rivers. Here's a good one. He says the rivers flow into the sea. The, the seas never fill up. Go think about that at Newport Beach sometime. You know, when I get a headache, you know, look at a Santa Ana River coming down there when there's water in it, which I never understood why it's still called a river when there's nothing in it, but it's a river bed. But you stand down there and you watch all the water coming down through there. Do you ever start going, oh, man, I hope this sucker doesn't fill up. <laughs> oh, man, a lie. Oh, stop that a minute. Whoa, don't let any more loose. It's like, what? Hey, it goes in the ocean. It doesn't get full. Think about it. It evaporates. It rains again. It all happens. It keeps going over and over again. He says, if that's not futile, nothing is. So he says, all things, verse 8, are wearisome. Man's not able to tell it. You know what he says? The eye is not satisfied with seeing. How many times have you redecorated your house? 
Holy smokes. It's like, and here's a guy who had a thousand wives. He knows what redecorating was all about. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Oh, no, not the wallpaper again. Holy smokes. Here we go again. We're going to take another room. And we're gonna do it. It's like, hey, man, you got a thousand wives. You almost have to give them a thousand rooms so they can decorate it any way that they want to decorate it. But it's like, isn't that the truth? Hey, the eye's not satisfied with seeing. Decorate, redecorate. Rip it down, put it back up. You don't like your clothes? Go buy something else. Don't like this combination? Then add a little red to it. Why? Because we're never satisfied with what we see. Because what we see just breeds in us the desire for more. So he's saying, if that's not futile, nothing is. And look what he says. Hey, that which has been, or the, the ear is not filled with hearing. We all want to have our ears tickled. Man, we go from place to place, listen to tape to tape, speaker to speaker. Oh, we want to hear the funniest stories. We want to hear the jokes. We want to hear all the good stuff because our ears are never satisfied. Because you know why? Empty words don't satisfy the soul. The Word of God does. I can tell a great story and it doesn't mean anything. You'll forget in a couple minutes. But God will convict you if there's an area of your life you need to straighten out. See, that's the difference between empty words and words that have meaning. So he goes through and says, hey, the ear's not filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. Hey, and that which has been done is that which will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that I accomplished doesn't mean anything. What do you think you're going to do that hasn't been done already? There's nothing new under the sun. That's the whole purpose of it. New Age movement? Baloney. It's not new. It's as old as Satan himself. There's nothing new about it at all. Look inside yourself. Find yourself. And you know what God says? That's a bunch of garbage. That's what he says. I don't know what that is in Hebrew. Dung, I think, is what it is. <laughs> but it's, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Well, they had a dung gate. Come on now. Give, it a, give me a chance here. But, but the point is, it's like, hey, nothing will be remembered. Here's the best one. Look at verse 11. Nothing you do will be remembered. You have a name on your building, a street sign, or whatever it is that you want, so you'll be remembered. And you know what? They'll see the name, but they won't remember you. Who are you? Solomon said, hey, I did all these things, and nothing's going to be remembered. Who won the World Series in 71? Who won the World Series in 76? Who won the Super Bowl? Who was the president in 56? Who was the vice president? Who was the speaker of the house? Who cares? <laughs> Amen. Hallelujah. Now we're catching on. Who cares? Life's meaningless. Life means nothing. Let's all what? Let's all realize the source of all that we'll enjoy in life. He wrote this to help us realize the source of all that you and I will ever enjoy from life. And it's not going to be found under the sun. Vanity, vanity, it's a waste of time. If you're searching on earth and you're going to have a better job, you're going to make more money, you're going to drive a nice car, you're going to have a nicer wife. You're going to live in Oregon, you're going to have a ranch in Montana. You know, with all the other convicts that are going to be there if I get my way. But you're going to do all these things. And you know what? And you're not going to enjoy any of them. Because the source of enjoyment doesn't come horizontally, but the source of enjoyment comes from a right relationship with the God who created you. And the purpose of his writing is to stop you from packing up, from running and running and running, and face the issue that all of us must face in life. And that is that, how did I get here? Why am I here? And where am I going? And then you'll have purpose and direction in life. But you'll never find it in your job. You'll never find it in a relationship. You'll never find it in any place under the sun. So if it's not under the sun, it must be above the sun. So instead of looking within, new age, garbage, don't look within, look without. Look outside of yourself and look and seek God who created you. Because when you know God, then you've got the answers. Look at Ecclesiastes 2 and we'll wrap this all together on this. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look at verse 24 and 25. 
He says, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? You will never, ever enjoy anything in this life that will be long-term satisfaction, maybe short-term pleasure, but you'll never have long-term satisfaction until you come to know the God who created you, until you know the purpose why you're here, and until you know what's right or wrong, which is also to remember our accountability before God. That's the purpose of why he wrote this. That's the whole reason for it. God wants you to enjoy life more than you'll ever know it. But he wants to do it on, on, on his terms. God will never change for you and I. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His program is, is solid. It doesn't change. It doesn't waver. And if you're going to ever enjoy life, it's about time that you realize that you're going to have to conform to his ways. He's not going to conform to yours. God created us in his image and his likeness. And we have been trying forever to put God into our image and likeness. We have been trying to put him into a part of our life and accommodate him however it is that we want to, to the degree that we want to. We want to change God into our image and likeness and it doesn't work because he created us in his image and in his likeness and his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are different than our ways and his ways will lead you to joy in your life and not futility. If you're trying to search for meaning and happiness in life without knowing him, if you're trying to do it and being disobedient to him. So it's a book for people who haven't come to a conclusion on whether there's a God or not. It's to show you that, hey, there's got to be a God. And for believers who say, yeah, I believe in God. I've accepted Christ. I want to be obedient to God. And yet we try to find a joy and happiness in our own way. He says, stop doing that. He says, fear God. Keep his commandments and anticipate one day that you'll be accountable to him personally. Do you want to have joy in your life? Do you want to have satisfaction in your life? Then what he's saying is it's about time that we start doing things God's way. Because we'll be running for the rest of our lives looking for something that we'll never find under the sun. It's about time we start looking above the clouds. What do you say? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity just to see clearly what you have to say to us. And we just thank you for the life of Solomon. It's a shame he had to be disobedient to learn a lot of the things that he learned, but we're just grateful for the lessons that he learned that he can share with us. It is true that you, you make all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose, that you can take the brokenness, the tragedies of our lives, and you can put them back together. God, help us to see that we're never going to find it where we're looking, but we need to turn to you. If we haven't come to conclusions on whether you exist or not, help us to see just the futility of life and help us to see the futility and strip away all the things that we think are going to have purpose. Help us to see the irony of the fact that it doesn't last. And if that's true, then you must have a reason and a purpose for us being here. God, help us to see that too. Help us to enjoy life. It's a gift from you as we're living right with you, as we walk with you, as we see the world from your vantage point. God, how can we have joy any greater than that? Lord, we just thank you for this time that we have, and we just thank you for the opportunity as we continue to go through this series to take an honest and open and transparent look at a person who ran and ran and checked into the back roads of his memories only to find that what he was looking for was right there all the time. And that was peace and joy that only comes through a personal knowledge of the God of the universe 
and your son who died for us. God, we just thank you for that. We look forward to this series in Jesus' name. Amen.